Welcome on in, guys and gals. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do hop over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 77 for the week of October 16th. We have a very special episode for you. We're going to be tackling uh, a geological topic, a uh, very hot one these days. Um, and we've got one of the leading specialists in the world to talk about the Witwater Sand Basin. Uh, and this is obviously a hot topic. A lot of people are talking about the Wits right now uh, due to a recent discovery by Novo Resources in the Pulbara region of Australia. And if you haven't heard this story by now, where have you been? Uh, this is a big one. Um, I'll summarize it a little bit here just to uh, sort of set the stage for the discussion on the wits that we have forthcoming. Uh, this is a stock Nova Resources. It's been around for a number of years, almost since I started the Northern Miner, which would put it five plus years as a listing. Anyways, it's been up and down uh, through its history. It's been uh, run by Quinton Hennig, Dr. Quinton Hennig, uh, under this theory of uh, a sort of water sand style discovery in the Pilbara region of Australia. Um, and this thing was trending at about 65 cents per share in mid-July when all of a sudden they released a YouTube video of them finding materially sized gold nuggets. These are not microns. Uh, these are these are significant size nuggets uh, on YouTube uh, and uh, it just blew up. I was I remember being in the Yukon when this happened. Uh, everybody was on their phones being like, what the hell's going on here? Is this even, you know, what's the disclosure here? Like YouTube videos. I, don't I doubt the exchange even has a policy on freaking YouTube videos. Uh, anyway, so this stock went from 65 cents and at the time of recording it's trading at $7 and $7. 70 cents per share uh, without a single drill hole, though they did find a bunch of gold nuggets. So there you go. Uh, but uh, Leslie was obviously really interested in this. Uh, she's done a lot of work in Australia. Uh, she's followed the Pilbara along. Um, and uh, she was also really interested in the Whitwater Sand Basin because, uh, as we all know, it's sort of a divisive topic amongst geologists in terms of uh, how it was formed and how the gold was deposited and uh, distributed. Um, so Leslie tracked down one of the uh, forefront uh, researchers in terms of the water sand, Dr. Hartwig Frimmel. Uh, and he was in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, Leslie got him on the phone to talk some pretty heavy geology about the water sand uh, and sort of what makes it so unique. Uh, so we don't talk too much directly about Novo, but in so much as some uh, newsletter writers uh, are covering this story, some sensationally, some not so much, uh, and uh, are saying WITS 2.0. And we've seen this spread around places. Uh, so what we really wanted to do is provide a very good scientific definition of what the Witwater sand is. Uh, and uh, I, this has got the stamp of approval from our editor-in-chief, John Cumming, who himself has a master's in science and geology. Uh, and he says, quote, it is the best explanation of the wits I have ever heard. So uh, this is a really exciting one. Uh, if you're interested in the noble resources that this wits 2.0 branding people are throwing around, or if you just want to get to understand the water sand basin a bit better, uh, this is a must listen. It's a, quite interesting. Uh, Dr. Frimmel is uh, very concise. Uh, I, I'd say it's, it's pretty accessible. I'm not a geologist myself, but uh, I found it really interesting. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's going to take up the bulk of our episode this week which is actually serendipitous because uh, Leslie and myself are actually heading out to Toronto uh, this coming week uh, for our Progressive Mine Forum, which is taking place uh, in Toronto on October 23rd. Uh, we'll be hosting a series of panels, roundtables, and presentations on innovations in mining pursuant to exploration, development, production, closure, and corporate social responsibility. So we're getting a, a lot of really great thought leaders in a room. Uh, you could you could check the list out at northernminer.com. There's, there's an absolute 
packed slate of great presenters. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll generate some awesome discussion, some thought leadership, uh, and some great things that can uh, sort of advance uh, the uh, the innovation drive we're seeing in the mining industry as we as we look toward the future of how uh, how we can uh, lower our footprints and uh, improve our ability to obtain social license all over the world. Uh, so it's going to be a great event. Leslie and I are really excited to head out there, see everybody uh, from our Toronto team. So uh, it's going to be a great event, uh, and we're also going to get an absolute monster amount of podcast audio, video, tons of stuff for you. Um, and it's also going to be live streamed. So if you're interested in that, the Progressive Mind Forum will be live streamed. Uh, you can check that out at northernminer.com on the Monday. Uh, if you want to check out any of those panels at all, please do feel free. That's going to be uh, that's going to be exciting times for all of us. We're innovating too. So <laughs> there, we, there we go. We're, we're trying uh, a live streamed event for the first time. So bear with us. Bear with us because we all know how technology is. Um, but anyways, let's uh, let's power through here to Leslie's. Uh, it's about a 40 minute discussion with Dr. Uh, um, Dr. Frimmel on the Whitwater-Sand Basin. And uh, it, it's it's just a great listen all around. So I'll let you go through with that. And uh, I'll, I will be back next week uh, with some great audio from our Progressive Mind Forum. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for uh, sitting down and listening to us. This has been Matthew Keevil with the Northern Miner Podcast, and I will talk to you next week. What's your background? Um, I know that I, I'm reading it online and everything, but what, what ties you to the Witzwatersand deposit? Yeah, but uh, I got interested in the Witzwatersand. In fact, yes, in the early 90s, uh, when I came to South Africa, and when I thought, well, something like the Witzwatersand must have been sorted out long ago because this is such a famous place and uh, economically so important, at least it was at that stage, that uh, surely everybody knows everything about the Witz. Um, uh, only to realize, uh, oh no, there are so many questions still open about this, fundamental questions uh, about uh, the biggest gold anomaly that we know of on planet Earth. Um, so that's how I got interested in it, and then I got roped into the into the big debate, uh, uh, which you have surely heard or read about, um, the big fundamental question, well, is it a soon genetic? In other words, is it is it plaster gold or is it uh, hydrothermal gold that got into these host rocks, the host conglomerates, uh, uh, millions, hundreds of million year, uh, million years later after sediment deposition? And that's been a debate that has been raging for for decades, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we could make a little contribution to to towards solving that debate. Um, so over the years, although I'm a trained metamorphic geologist, um, so I should have been in the hydrothermal camp. But when I looked at the evidence, I learned very quickly: no, this is this is plaster gold that just got uh, hydrothermally remobilized, um, giving it the features that we find today. But the big question that remained was: well, where did all this gold come from? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the question I've been chasing maybe for the last 10, 15 years. And I admit that I was barking up the wrong tree for, for quite a few times. <laughs> um, but I believe that sort of maybe in the last three, four years we made significant progress and uh, now have a model 
that seems to explain all the data and observations that 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 are available. And there's lots of that around. Ooh, this is such an interesting subject. Um, God, where, where do I begin? Okay, I want to cover all of those points. Um, I just wanted to ask. So, in in what's scientific consensus on? the formation of this particular deposit is it in genetic do people think it's hydrothermal like what's where where does the ball kind of drop more court um well look the problem started with on the one hand the miners who have been mining the old for more than 100 years they always followed stratigraphy and sedimentology uh, they followed a certain rock type that's a conglomerate and it's not only one conglomerate, but there are dozens of them. And the day-to-day underground exploration always followed sedimentological features in order to find the gold. Mm-hmm. So just based on that observation alone, one had to conclude there must be a sedimentological control on the distribution of the gold. And uh, that leads to the, to the uh, hypothesis that the gold is plastic gold. <clears throat> But then, on the other hand, if you take an ore sample from the Vitruvius runs and you make a thin section and you look at this under the microscope mm-hmm. and you look at the actual position of the gold in the rock, then you realize, oh, wow, strange. This gold occurs in what we call in a late textual position. In other words, it occurs in a position in the rock that indicates that it entered the rock or that it crystallized in the rock long after sedimentation. Hmm. So we've got a observation on a large scale, on a basin-wide scale, on a gold feed uh, scale, and we have a microscopic observation, and they contradict each other completely. Um, and that's been pretty much the the core of this big fight. I mean, it was almost like a religious fight. <laughs> is, it now, is, is it now some genetic, in other words, uh, same age as the host rocks, or is it epigenetic, in other words, is the gold younger than the host rock? Mm. And those who love microscopy would argue for an epigenetic hydrothermal model, and those who, look at the, who like to look at the things on a larger perspective, on a... Uh, on a larger scale, they would say, no, no, this is definitely sedimentary. This is this is uh, plaster gold. Um, the breakthrough came indeed in the early 1990s when I was just lucky and got hold of one single specimen with beautiful, visible gold in it. It became a very famous specimen. It's been the cover page of I don't know how many books. Um, but the gold distribution on that specimen uh, defines what any sedimentologist would call cross-bedding. Mm-hmm. In other words, like a classic heavy mineral concentration um, uh, on the base of a conglomerate bed. And that specimen, we took, to, we took apart and used pretty much every single method that was available at that time uh, to uh, analyze anything that could be analyzed on this specimen including the morphology of the gold particles. Um, what we do is we just dissolve this thing in hydrofluoric acid to remove all the rest, mm-hmm. and then carefully separate the gold grains and look at them under the electron microscope. 
And uh, indeed, it turned out that uh, the vast majority of these gold particles had typical shapes of, of nuggets, of, of mechanically abraded particles. Mm-hmm. And then there were maybe one third of the particles that were clearly hydrothermal, secondary. But they all came from the same specimen. And that indicated that obviously we had some plaster gold, but some later fluids, hydrothermal fluids, were capable of mobilizing that plaster gold and dissolving it and re-precipitating it. And that explains all the hydrothermal features that you find under the microscope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that specimen, both generations of gold were perfectly preserved. Um, that leads to quite a bit of a rethinking and leads to the, what we call the modified paleoplasma model. So modified because it's hydrothermally modified, but originally the gold entered the conglomerate as plasma gold. Funny enough, yeah. that that story, and I remember I presented this, this, this story uh, at a conference, uh, in the, I think in 96 or 97, sometimes in the 90s, I remember it was a conference in Belfast. Um, it was actually the first international conference in Belfast after they sort of stopped officially the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a different story. <laughs> and yeah. there was the, one of the representatives of the other school of thought, of the hydrothermalists. And he also gave a talk there and t- told the exact opposite story. And in the discussion time, when one of the South Africans stood up and said, well, but now, how do you explain uh, this plaster gold particles that this group in South Africa, in, in Cape Town, uh, described? And this guy actually stood there and said, no, no, this is an artifact of sample preparation. Uh, these, these little nuggets they don't really exist. So oh. basically, he accused us that we, that we modified the shape of thousands of gold particles to fit the story. Um, that was quite a serious accusation, I would say. Oh and it God. was only uh, maybe two years ago, yes, two, two and a half years ago, when I sort of back out that sample again and cut off another slice from it, or whatever is left over, and used a very modern technique. Uh, today, we can actually analyze the shape of such gold particles in the rock in situ uh, without dissolving it. Uh, it's a method we call uh, micro X-ray computer tomography. Uh, you know computer tomography from from medicine. Okay. And uh, we can do now the same things using X-rays. Um, and distinguish different particles of different density in a given material. It uh, doesn't even have to be a rock. Um, if you want to discover hidden Kalashnikovs in washing powder in a ship container without opening the container, you can do the same method. Anyhow, on a micro scale, uh, we apply this method. So we applied this method to the this, to this sample, and now I could show you videos uh, in situ showing the distribution, 3D distribution of these gold particles in the in these conglomerates. And there uh, you can see the plastic gold, uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Right. Um, so, to cut a very long story reasonably short, 
apart from a, a whole range of other arguments, indirect arguments, like the size, the distribution of the gold of the ore bodies, uh, the geochemical dispersion patterns, uh, you name it, you can apply anything. Um, this plasma model holds with the provisor that the shape and the position of the gold today in the rock is in many cases modified by later hydrothermal fluids. But originally the gold got into these conglomerates as plaster gold. Mm -hmm. um, but the hydrothermalists would now say, yeah, well, but where did all the plaster gold come from? And in the Witwatersrand, we have never ever discovered large nuggets. I looked at thousands of samples in the, in the course of the last 27 years. And I cannot recall a single quartz pebble with primary gold inclusions in it. And that's what you would expect if you have some kind of gold quartz vein in the hinterland being eroded and uh, then uh, you release the gold to full plaster gold. Yeah. That doesn't exist in the reported trend. And that was always the main argument of the hydrothermalists as well, but you don't have a source for your plaster gold. And it was a very valid argument. So in that sense, what novel resources is now finding in the Pilbara is a very different story because they have proper nuggets. In fact, they have nuggets up to four centimeters in size. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the water strength nuggets I mentioned a, mi a minute ago, they are 100 microns in size at best. There right. are no bigger nuggets, right? So that's a big, big difference, and I think it's an important difference. Um, the other problem with the source of the plaster gold and the Witwatersrand is just the sheer amount of gold. Uh, you're talking about 90,000 tons of gold. If you have, if, if you need to derive this from discrete old Archean uh, gold deposits, quartz, gold quartz veins, or whatever kind of deposit, well, you would have to have uh, basically one deposit next to each other over the entire kraton in order to explain 90,000 tons of gold. That's, that's not realistic. So from a purely mass balance point of view, um, it makes no sense. The big, big open question. And my current hypothesis on this, and as I said, this is something we developed only over the last few years, is that this gold cannot come from discrete old deposits, because as I said, mass balance doesn't, doesn't, cannot explain this. Um, this gold must have entered the Vitrotusrin Basin and these conglomerates by a completely different process. And when you start thinking about what this world might have looked like three billion years ago, or more precisely 2.9 billion years ago, then you realize that the whole chemistry of the atmosphere, of the hydrosphere, was so different. And it was different in the sense that there was, there was no oxygen, it was a stinking soup rich in CO2, rich in methane, um, 
and rich in uh, H2S. And how do we know this? Well, we know it from the rock records. And the H2S, uh, high H2S concentrations, we know from the from the um, global widespread occurrence of rounded detrital pyrite and pyrite that has grown in the sediment, since sedimentary pyrite. You can take any conglomerate from the Archean, anywhere in the world, and you will find this kind of pyrite. And that's important because if you have this stinking H2S rich uh, <clears throat> atmosphere um, with lots of CO2 and lots of methane, well, just try and imagine you live in that world. Well, you wouldn't be able to live because it would have been very acidic. The mm-hmm. rain that came out of the Zakian clouds was like acid. It was. It had a pH of vinegar. Um, this rain would attack the rocks on the ground, so you would have intense chemical weathering. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Intense chemical weathering means dissolution of feldspar. And feldspar is by far the most uh, common rock-forming mineral. Mm -hmm. If you dissolve feldspar in in an acidic water, you turn it into kaolinite, into a clay mineral. And that reaction will buffer the pH value at close to neutral conditions. That means the river water that was flowing on the Achaean land surface would have been, well, would have had a pH close to neutral. Uh, it would have had a very high H2S content because of this omnipresence of pyrite. Mm-hmm. And under these conditions, you can calculate by thermodynamics, thermodynamics will predict that the solubility of gold under these conditions is about four orders of magnitude greater than in modern river water. Okay? Mm-hmm. So in other words, in the Archean world, rain would have dissolved gold out of the rock. And the Archean rivers would have been loaded with gold in a dissolved form. So now we don't need a specific source anymore because the entire land surface is a potential source. Mm. So now we have the gold-rich river water, but we still need a trap to get the gold out of the river water again. And in the modern world, you wouldn't find such a trap. But at 2.9 billion years ago, something very special happened. It was the time when the first oxygen-producing, photosynthesizing microbes showed up in Earth's history. So we have another important parameter in the whole gold story. It's the evolution of life. Cool. Now, at 2.9 billion years, as I said, probably the first cyanobacteria started to develop, started to form colonies. And where would this cyanobacteria grow? In the wetlands, of course. Uh, That might have been shallow coastal, shallow marine settings. 
that could have been floodplains along rivers, but by and large you can envisage that coastal regions would have been the perfect areas for these first microbial mats to grow. Now they grew in an oxygen-free world and an oxygen-free atmosphere. Now what would happen if you have river water or maybe even shallow coastal seawater that is loaded with gold and this water comes into contact with this cyanobacterial mats. Just picture these cyanobacterial mats. Um, you find them in all sorts of modern wetlands. Mm -hmm. And if you study these cyanobacteria, well, they're very delicate structures that produce no oxygen. So you would have these oxygen bubbles emerging on top of these mats going into an oxygen-free environment. <clears throat> and if you add just a little bit of oxygen to that river water, it would decrease the solubility of gold by orders of magnitude. In other words, gold would immediately precipitate. So then I think that these microbial mats, these cyanobacterial mats, they provide a trap sites for the gold. Now that's a story I sort of for the first time postulated in 2014. Interestingly, completely independent of my thoughts, uh, in 2015 there was Chris Heinrich from the ETH in Zurich. He came up with pretty much the same idea, um, just that he didn't do it with oxygen, he did exactly the opposite. He said, no, no, these, these microbial mats, they will sink the gold. It was a reduction trap, um, right. as you would find in the modern world. I don't know which one is right. Maybe both. Um, I just think that oxygenation in an overall reducing world, as we had in the Achaean, would be the more effective mechanism. <clears throat> Today, in an, in an oxygen-rich world, uh, reduction is the more effective mechanism. But who knows? I mean, in the Achaean, both mechanisms could have been operated actually side by side. Mm. That's, that's maybe a technical issue, quite frankly. But the point is, we had these microbial mats that, 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 that acted as trap sites for the gold. So whenever there was um, river water flowing, like say imagine you had an Achaean storm, a nice rainstorm, the floodplains got, got flooded and you get river water flowing over these microbial mats, then these microbes would actually get the gold, fix the gold, trigger precipitation of gold on the surfaces. And the same would happen in shallow marine settings. So now you might say, well, this is all a very nice story, but do we have any evidence for it? Mm -hmm. Because microbial mats that might have existed 2.9 billion years ago they're very delicate structures. What's the preservation potential of these things? It's close to zero. Oh. And yet, in the water trend, we have remnants of these microbial mats. And that's the real sensation. So this is not just theory. I can actually take you into a gold mine and put my finger on the rock face and say, well, here it is. I thought um, it was in the carbon. I thought it was in the carbon beds. Is it carbon mixed with 
That's right. Is that, yeah, it's is the that famous, what it is? It's these carbon themes. Mm. And one of the biggest and richest, but actually the richest ore body that has ever been mined is the so-called carbon leader reef. It's now basically mined out. Uh, it's almost history. <clears throat> but it yielded by far most of the retorters and gold. Um, and there the gold occurs attached to these carbon seams. It's in the carbon seams. And these carbon seams, they are sort of a few millimeters to a couple of centimeter thick layers um, that drape old erosion surfaces. And we did already, gosh, 14, 15 years ago, we did all sorts of organic chemistry on this carbon material. And we did isotope analysis on the whole alkane fractions. Um, and in fact, actually, it was the carbon isotope data that's maybe most significant here. Um, because there's no fractionation between the various alkanes in terms of uh, delta C uh, 13 values. And this lack of fractionation is actually very strong evidence that these are in situ microbial mats, that um, these are not products of migrating oils, as some people make us believe. Right. They are really, yeah, that they represent original microbial mats. Um, so now we have a trap for the gold. But of course, if you go back to the Akia world 2.9 billion years ago, so we had these microbial colonies attracting the gold, trapping the gold, fixing the gold on their surfaces. But with every storm, with every regressive event, whenever these sediments got resedimented, uh, uh, this gold. Would, uh, within these microbial mats would have been mechanically reworked immediately. So as I said, preservation potential of this is extremely low. Mm-hmm. And probably 99% of it would mechanically reworked and recycled. But recycled to what? Well, you would release micron-sized gold particles from the mechanical reworking of these delicate structures and that gold would have been washed downstream in order to accumulate again as heavy mineral within conglomerates. And now we have an explanation how these very fine-grained micro-nuggets got into the conglomerates. It explains the lack of larger gold nuggets. It explains the lack of uh, detrital quartz grains with, with gold inclusions. So I think the source of all our plaster gold under the quarters rent was in the first instance uh, gold that was trapped by these microbial mats. But that was only a once in, a, in, in, in there was only once in, in Earth's history there were the right conditions to do this, and that was 2.9 billion years ago. Right. And so, from then onwards. Yeah. The fuel just got recycled, recycled, recycled. And that's the reason why the grade and the, the gold endowment of younger paleoplasters gets worse and worse the younger they get. Mm. I see. Anyhow, so now I did a lot of talking. <laughs> sorry no, this, this is like the best story. <laughs> um, very, really, really interesting insight for sure. But I was wondering, um, so like, because you said that it's all within a specific stratigraphic section of the, the basin, I believe it's like the upper part, right? Of the Wits Basin. So 
um, if there was like acid rain flushing down and dissolving all this gold, wouldn't you see kind of elevated gold throughout the basin or wouldn't there be a little bit more layers that are gold rich that have been reworked? Like why that specific stratigraphic horizon? Why did that get all the gold then? When well, you think of your model. Okay. It is not one single specific stratigraphic horizon. Okay. Okay. The Witwatersrand Basin, yeah. well, the basin fill comprises a stratigraphic succession known as the Witwatersrand Supergroup, which reaches up to seven kilometers in thickness. Mm-hmm. And it's not one position within that stratigraphic succession that is gold bearing, but there are dozens of them. Oh. Um, those that are older than 2.9. They don't contain much gold. Now, why not? Because they don't have the microbial seams, or these these, these carbon seams. They don't have the microbial mats. Um, Maybe they didn't exist yet at that time. As I said, you you need the fortuitous coincidence of a whole bunch of parameters, the right chemistry of the atmosphere, the right chemistry of the hydrosphere, and the emergence of um, photosynthesizing uh, life forms. And you only have one specific, very narrow time window in which all the conditions were overlapping in the right way. Mm -hmm. I know that 2.9 and 2.7 are both really important ages for a lot of the mineralization that we see in the greenstone belts across the world, like the Abitibi yes. here, um, the Superior yep, Province, right. the Yilgarn, about South Africa. Yep. Is that does that come into this story somewhere too? Like yes, it actually does. Okay. Because if you look at the age of all the greenstone hosted gold deposits, there's a big age peak. Uh, if you look at the secular uh, temporal distribution of these type of deposits throughout Earth's history, there's a big peak at about. 2.75 to 2.55 billion years. You hardly find any kind of greenstone hosted gold deposits that are older than 2.75 billion years. Mm-hmm. But at 2.75, all of a sudden, a lot of these gold deposits formed. Now, where did these gold deposits form? They formed uh, above subduction zones. So you need already some kind of reasonably modern plate tectonics operating to form these kind of deposits. And the beginning of modern plate tectonics is probably around 3 billion years. But there is another parameter that is important. To form these kind of greenstone-hosted gold deposits, you need magma from the mantle that is already enriched in gold. Now today, in the modern world, that kind of source you find above subduction zones. Uh, it's the subcontinental lithospheric mantle above subduction zones. That's the classic source for gold, for copper, for all sorts of metals. Um, in my view, prior to three billion years, the whole conditions weren't right yet to fertilize the mantle to, 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 to uh, in, have a, some kind of pre-enrichment in that mantle. Why not? Because there was no gold in the sediments 
being subducted because there was no gold and the top of the Earth's crust concentrated yet. Mm. Only after 2.9 billion years, we have a source for gold to be tectonically recycled via subduction to go down into the mantle. And now, if you think about that, if you have our first concentration of gold at 2.9 billion years, how long does it take for these gold-rich sediments to be subducted and recycled so to come back uh, to the surface to form porphyry-type gold deposits or orogenic-type gold deposits? Well, in the modern world, it would take about um, some 150, 200 million years. Yeah. And that's exactly the time delay between 2.9 and 2.75 billion years. Mm-hmm. So actually, we even have an explanation for the first peak in the Greenstone-hosted gold deposits. Yeah, because I know there was some gold coming in at 2.9. So yeah, I guess everything was kind of... So you're saying that it was eroded away on the continents, or not, not eroded, but consumed by subduction zones. Yes. And then right. yeah. basically pumped back in to the, to the crust during mountain building. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, in your part of the world, uh, the earthy deposit I know nothing about. I only know this from a PhD thesis that was recently completed, and that's the Cote deposit in the ABTB. Do you know that? Which one? The Cote deposit. Cote. The South Cote. Uh, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrongly because oh. I don't speak French. <laughs> oh, neither do I. <laughs> no, I haven't. I actually haven't heard of that one, Courtier. Do you it's, know a, it's a fairly recent discovery. They only discovered the deposit a few years ago. And okay. it's probably a porphyry-type deposit. It's a porphyry gold deposit, gold copper. And it must be the oldest porphyry gold deposit in the world. Mm. And it's fairly well dated at about 2.74 billion years. And it fits perfectly into this story. Mm. Maybe you're talking about windfall area. Maybe there's something there because I know that that's like porphyry-like, but nobody ever mentions Archean porphyry because everyone gets a little bit nervous about mentioning those words. <laughs> uh, well, the Australians they have they have a porphyry deposit. They call it a porphyry deposit that is as old as 3.2 billion years. Yeah. Oh yeah, Boddington or. Um, no, no, Boddington is younger. Boddington is 2.6 or something. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, and, and I agree. I mean, I actually worked in Boddington, and I'm quite happy to call Boddington a porphyry. Oh. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. I know there's one in the, in the Bilbara, in the northern Bilbara, um, and that's, uh, what's the name? Coppin Creek, uh, Coppin Gap. Coppin Gap, that's right. Okay. But interestingly, uh, it shows all sorts of features of, of the cup kind of porphyry system but it's a copper moly copper molybdenum system it has got no gold right and I think it's just too old uh, at that stage gold wasn't around yet in the crust <laughs> yeah so um, when it comes to when it comes to the basin like is the Witz Basin the size of it completely defined or is it half chopped off and is there actually a missing half that people are trying to search for in Australia, for example, or is that area pretty geographically defined or geologically defined? Um, well, of course, everybody wants to find the second bit of Basin, but the chances are quite slim. Um, you'll find the style, the Witwatersrand Strand type of mineralization, you'll find on every single Archean craft on. It's nothing, it's nothing special. 
you go and look for uh, conglomerates in India, in South America, in Canada. Uh, in fact, when you're sitting in Canada, so you only need to go to the to the Elliott Lake area or to the uh, uh, you know, to the base of the Uranium Supergroup, and you find exactly the same style of mineralization. It's mm-hmm. everywhere. It's it's nothing unique to the Wits. What's different in the Wits is the size, is the amount of gold. And you can explain that by the fact that all these other conglomerates that we know of on these other Achaean cratons, they are not of the right age. They tend to be a bit younger. And as I said earlier on, the younger you get, the the poorer your source is. Um, um, when we find uh, this kind of gold deposits as young as... Uh, 2.1, 1.8 billion years. But they're not big deposits anymore. Mm-hmm. They're small deposits in comparison. Because most of the source, and the best source was, were these 2.9 billion year uh, conglomerates. They would have been eroded, they would have been recycled. They wouldn't be wouldn't been around anymore by 2 billion years. So it's a question of age and preservation. And the Woodwater Basin happens to be the only basin in the world uh, that is so perfectly preserved with the rocks of the right age. And the right age is 2.9, 2.8 billion years. So, two, sorry, 2.9 billion years. Yes, and so 2.9 was the peak. Uh, and then sort of it, it uh, decreased exponentially with age, but... I would say 2.9 to 2.8. That's the best time window for finding the richest possible reported trend type deposits. Oh, okay. I thought I always thought it was 2.7 for some reason, like because I, I thought that. Well, the big bar is now 2.7. That's 2.74 or something like that. Mm. Um, and there are. Uh, nice uh, conglomerates uh, in the reported trend that are 2.71 in age. And uh, there's one particular unit, the Ventostorp Contact Reef, that's 2.71 billion years. It's a very ritual body, it's being mined. Um, but it's not as good anymore as the reefs that were 2.8 or 2.9. Okay, comparatively. I mean, as I said, uh, at 2 billion years, 2.1, you go to Ghana, there's the Tarqua deposit, 2.1 billion years. Uh, it's a gold mine, uh, it's a plaster gold mine. Um, but it's uh, we're talking a few uh, uh, hundreds of tons of gold and not 90,000 tons of gold. <laughs> no. <laughs> so the nuggets that you see at WITS, like there is, there's, it's in the micron size, eh? It's not nothing larger? Yes. No. Right. Nothing larger, except um, the local little gold called Spain, which is nothing else but remobilization mobilization of the gold from the conglomerate con- from the conglomerates into little faults and fractures there you can find uh, visible gold uh, but uh, that's secondary that's that's not our primary type of gold in these conglomerates right so the, the actual micro nuggets are literally micro nuggets a few tens to hundreds of microns in size at best but the first big trap uh, that I call it the gold mega event. It's 2.9 billion years. That was the starting shot. That was the beginning of the entire crustal gold cycle. 
and um, there in the in the Harvey Formation and the Fortescue Group of the Bilbara, well, that's already two hundred million years later. So uh, it's it's not the best time. Well, no, actually, sorry, one hundred fifty million years later. That's uh, if it were a bit older, then it would be richer. Let's put it that way. <laughs> if it's what, sorry? If it, if it were a bit older than yeah. two point seven four, whatever it is then it would probably be a bit richer. Oh. Well, this is really interesting. This gives me a lot of um, meat to kind of chew on and really explains a lot of things because when I research the the wits, I get kind of confused because of all the different ideas kicking around. So thanks for laying it out for me. Yeah, I know. It's it's complicated and it's controversial and you will get very different ideas uh, if you speak to different people. Yeah, yeah, totally. So do you think that if I went out and tried to find a bunch of sediments at 2.9 billion-year-old sediments in a basin, I could have, I should bring a metal detector or, like, chip uh, anything? If you find <laughs> conglomerates. Oh, uh, okay. So Lugia, it has to... Lugia del take conglomerates. Oh, what's up with then, the conglomerates? Is it just because it's... Like, why why conglomerates? Uh, why not just find sediments? Um, well, because that's where you, where you concentrate heavy minerals. Yeah. Oh, oh, right, because yes. um, it's the reworked placer. Yes, yes. To find the microbial mats, oh gosh, I mean, that's that's fishing for the needle and the haystack because, as I said, the chances of survival of such delicate structures is minimal. Mm. Um, so most of the gold would have been taken out of these former microbial mats and mechanically recycled into heavy mineral concentrations. And that's why you're looking for conglomerates. Oh, I see. But then the gold still retains um, features that it looks to be precipitated, you said, like mm-hmm. or coming out of solution. But I guess some of it must be abraded because it has been reworked, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, cool. Just make sure I understand it. Thank you so much, and I'll be in touch with you via email. But have a wonderful day out in Cape Town okay. and sleep well.